Welcome to the Mechanical Inc. podcast, a collection of conversations about the open source ecosystem. We speak with maintainers and companies that play a key role in ensuring the health and sustainability of open source today and in the future. Hey, Jennifer. Thanks for joining me on the Mechanical Inc. podcast. Um, so how are you today? How is life treating you? I mean, it's Friday, so it should be a relaxing moment, but usually it's a, okay, you got to get shit done for the rest of the week moment, but that's good. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same here. So um, <clears throat> I learned about you through a colleague at a client I, I work with, uh, Mozilla, um, and specifically the MDN WebDocs team. Um, she's called Ruth John. Um, she kind of knows you, um, from what I understand. Uh, maybe she knows of your work. Maybe she doesn't know you personally, but she shared an article you wrote about uh, what the fuck is wrong with open source communities. And I was like, <laughs> that's a good read. Let me, let me read that. Um, the funny thing is it's, it's interesting to me from a different perspective different couple of perspectives so let me lay those out on the table so um i run a company called mechanical inc um it's been a company for a long time just as a way for me to work with international clients um but i didn't really have a i didn't really think about what i wanted to do with that um but over the years, I started feeling more and more like maybe I should do something with this instead of just, you know, working for somebody. Maybe there's something useful I can do. Because for me, um, I want the work that I do to be meaningful and impactful as much as possible. Um, and so I try to find people and clients that I can work with that, that has a mission that I can believe in. And that's one of the reasons I started contracting with Mozilla way back in the day. Um, but in the last year, I found what I wanted to do with Mechanical Inc. And that is for it to be an open source company um, that focuses on the open source ecosystem, but then also civic and ethical tech. Because uh, I think we're in an, we are in an inflection point when it comes to tech in general. Um, some of it is painful for a lot of people. Some of it is necessary evil. Um, and some things have just been let go, you know, without too much constraint being put on it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't want, didn't want to do another, uh, agency building websites for other people. Want to do meaningful work. But then, um, on, at the Mozilla side, I was part of the MDN WebDocs project, which is a massive open source project. Um, and I love what it stands for and what it does and the opportunities it creates for people to learn how to make websites in a way that's easily accessible, that's free and all, the, all that kind of stuff and be able to contribute back to it. And so in April this year, I switched from being the front-end engineer on the project to being the community manager for um, WebDocs. And that is where I started digging into... Uh, the community aspects more and more and more. I kind of always did it, and that's why I was the natu natural choice when we started looking for somebody. But um, <clears throat> now having done it for a while, I've been digging into all the things, um, and I've realized some of these problems that I wasn't entirely aware of. Some of them I was, some of them I wasn't. So that is why that article was very um, well-timed for me, 
because I was starting to feel that WTF feelings. And so when that came across my path, I was like, this is the perfect combination of things. Me finding my way with the company, what I do at Mozilla, and this article you've written. And I was like, I have to speak to you. So um, that is a very long way of telling you how we got to today. Um, so I think with all of that said, I'm going to shut up. And then I'm going to... Well, I have a question for you. Shoot. Because you said something that is a bit contradictory, or maybe is an oxymoron even. Okay. You said you wanted to be an open source company. What do you think that is, and what does that mean? So, it's a combination of things for me personally. So, other than being an open source company, it's also an open startup. So... That means everything we do is transparent. Um, that includes salaries, that includes our expenses, that includes any income we generate, profits we make, um, all of that. I'm busy. So for the longest time, the company also didn't have a website. It does have a website now, and I'm currently working on this slash open page, which is where you share all these statistics. And that includes... Um, how we approach hiring, for example. Um, I hate this idea that because you live in India, you get paid a quarter of the of the salary of somebody that lives in the Bay Area. Um, and I know it's there's there's a happy middle ground you need to find um, because you know as a company that runs in South Africa, I also only have the monetary capabilities that I have as a company in in Africa, but. I don't want to use those salary scales. Like when I employ, I want to employ with what's fair for the work you do, not where you live. So that plays into it. So you're an ethical company. You're a transparent company. I don't think you are in an open source company. You are an open company. You're a transparent, ethical. These are all great things. I would say as an intro to those that maybe are less familiar with open source or haven't thought of it as a business, Open source is not a business model because open source inherently you are licensed. We can open source is a community, but it is heart is the open source software, which means, or can be open licensed creative commons images, any creative work that creative workers are doing. And, but you are, if you're doing a true open source license, not some MongoDB stuff, <laughs> things like that. Um, you are saying that anyone can use your code, including to profit off of, including yeah. for unethical reasons, yeah. mm -hmm. including to build a website that spreads hate speech, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm arguing you are not an open source company. You are a company that maybe utilizes open source tools, participates in open source communities, maybe consults open source communities, um, and you strive to be transparent and ethical, but I would say, and this is the problem with open source. Ah, okay. So open source as a whole, and it's interesting because this isn't something I discussed in that article, but then someone brilliantly responded to my article in a comment mm -hmm. and discussed it. And this is very true. Open source is a great thing in some ways, but is inherently flawed, which leads to inherent huge problems with diversity, equity, and inclusion belonging, as it were, because it is based on voluntary work 
And who already does more than three quarters of the voluntary care work in the world? Women and people of color, etc. As you grow into the intersectionalism, these are more marginalized people, people marginalized by tech, not by themselves. Tech is marginalizing them. So what's happening is tech as a whole, somewhere between 20 and there are many problems with diversity in tech. It's easiest to talk along the binary because that is typically what most companies and specifically open source companies and open source surveys are targeting. Typically they can do, they're doing the binary and where people are. So that means tech in general, we're talking about 20 to 23, 24% women. The gra- And that's across the board, at least for graduating from computer science degrees. Okay. When you talk about open source, yes, the Google Summer of Code and all these fantastic programs that are these internships that are really positive, maybe are about that. Maybe do have like a 23% women participants. But as you go along, you have, I'm trying to remember my friend Bianca, my friend in the world of tech called it a, I'm going to look it up because it's a word I hadn't heard before, but she, I think, coined Bianca Trinkenreich coined the term, it's right there, I will find it, but basically people leak. So we're, uh, we're ending up with maybe three to 4% women and non-binary people contributing to the tech community. Now, the new Linux Foundation survey of diversity, equity, and inclusion last year was up there at like 14%, which is mind-boggling compared to any other survey. So I really need to dive into their statistics and everything. Um, But there's a leak and it doesn't just usually, when it's in open source, it doesn't usually just affect the open source, the individual open source community. It affects the whole open source community because people are less likely to, if, and then it affects the tech community because women are more, much more likely and people minoritized by tech and the world are more likely to quit tech. So they invest in all that time and energy learning the skill set and then they quit because they feel ostracized and stuff. So that's a long way around to say, I think you can have an open source mindset. You can have an open mindset. You can have transparency, but I don't think you are technically an open source company because open source is still defined inherently in that license. So if everything you're doing was licensed under like MIT license or one of these licenses, it could be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's such a thing as an open source mindset for better or for worse, things like that. But there inherently can't really be a business around open source. You can build a business, a an abstraction layer on top of open source because open source is inherently more complex code and you can find a way to make it simpler and provide a service, but you're not open source then. You're proprietary on top yeah, yeah, of open yeah, source, yeah. things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, so it's, it's a tricky thing. So open source is a very odd duck. And because it still relies on voluntary work and or companies of the larger projects are sponsoring it and then paying their developers, their engineers, their even marketers, community management people as their day job to contribute to it is the other way. And then 
we know the largest companies in tech and in the world also have diversity, equity, inclusion problems. So it's a full cycle. So those are the two ways most people are coming across. So like in 2020, there was a huge up increase, and it's wonderful in that way, um, of people contributing to open source because they were bored <laughs> and that's a great way to, and there was a downturn in the economy. So some people were losing jobs, but they're also, they had all this time on their hands to make bread and to contribute to open source. It's a great way to get example of work and to contribute to a community and get a network. So you get proof of work and you have a network, but who, whose lives got harder when schools were closed? Full circle again, I'm sure if we look at the statistics, parents, but mostly women, were not able to contribute more. People um, people of color who are more likely to be taking care of older or disabled relatives, statistically like much more likely to be living in intergenerational households, not able to. Those that can't afford to have internet when they're working from home or don't have a place that they can have background, because remember, virtual backgrounds didn't work. For black people for months on Zoom because they would just behead them. So there was just a whole cycle of different problems with that. So open source is a reflection of problems of society. It can be a great thing, but it can also be a mess because you can have hundreds of thousands of people in a community and it can tend to be more of a free-for-all. Yeah, yeah. So okay that, that that's interesting so you cannot truly be an open source business because if that's the case then you need to be kind of like a non-profit right um that's the only feasible way of being a truly open source company if you are not so your code is all freely available um and then you stack ethics on top of that to in an attempt to try and prevent people from using your software for uh, nefarious purposes. There is a new license coming about about that, an ethical use license, because I think that is the only fair situation. And this happened with Google. Like they had walkouts and all, but their AI, a lot of Google is open source. A lot. Android, Kubernetes, these all came out of there. But they were getting contracts to the U.S. government. Guess what the U.S. government spends money on tech with? Only really on defense. The rest of it is pretty analog. Um, still. So, and people walked out and things. So that is something that's happening with, like, open source tooling. WordPress. WordPress is a business that provides templates and things, but it is also an open source company. Um, or not company, it's an open source product. It is a company that spawned, that is the main sponsor of an open source product. Um, and it sells things, but you can also get a WordPress site for free. It does definitely have less value for an SEO perspective and things like that, um, for speed, things like that, but you can still do it. Anyone can spin one up, can fork it, but yeah, that's how that works. You but they still can't restrict what you use it for. 
as the free use case if someone used it to build an anti-trans troll farm they can't restrict that use there are other ways people can put pressure on different things but that they can't and still be considered open source but there is talk of a new ethical open source license I don't know where that is. I'm very excited for it because I think that is a problem. But Yeah, no, me too. That sounds really good. I would totally support that. Um, I'll definitely go do some search and try, and try and find more information about it. So how would you rephrase the, the I don't know, how you would call yourself? So if you would say, like, I'm an open source company that's also into ethical and civic tech. And it's like, oh, but the open source company part is not quite accurate. How would you rephrase that? open source friendly <laughs> i mean everything we build is open source and you can use it for whatever nefarious reasons but we would like you not to do that but of course we can't restrict you from doing that um currently um at least hopefully this licensing has a way of, of enabling us to do that it's going to be hard it's going to be legal legalese it's going to have to play a role there and that's expensive um also, who is participating in creating the code? That's another thing. Who is seeing the roadmap? This is what comes up. MongoDB, I'm not trying to be harsh on them. I'm not a data scientist. I don't, I've never even forked anything. So I'm not, I don't tech. I write about tech, but they're always the, the example. They created their own, air quotes, open source license from other reasons than anything else, like outside pull requests do not get accepted. They keep everything lock and key. It's like at least 98% of the code is written with by staffers for MongoDB. Um, they, they don't publish a roadmap. So when, when updates come out, it's kind of like, a, oh, wow, look what just happened. No one knew it was coming. Things like that. But they are a successful business. They are publicly traded. Like, they do have the ability to, I don't, well, tech, they can't be under open source and I have not read their license details to understand, but maybe they, under their license could stop because of use of some reason. They try to, yeah, but there are still companies like Percona building on top of it to try to abstract complexity and things. And they are, they then market themselves as this alternative and the ethical open source. So it's, it's spinning something, but I mean, you can be, have open source in your mindset and all. I just don't think you're a company or an open source business. Open source is a mindset and especially it's a community. So you, and, and on the other hand, there are tons of proprietary software that have created wonderful communities as well. And Slack is a great, use for all of those slack works whether you're a little company you're a bunch of you're trying to crowdsource even though you're not open source you're trying to crowdsource technical support or support or you're trying to build this whole enriched community around open source yeah who knows yeah it's interesting so yeah i, I think one of the one of the example examples of that nefarious use um is what happened with um Okay, Audacity. So Audacity is open source. It's a. Uh, it's probably was the most popular open source audio editing tool, and then it was purchased 
by another company and injected full of spyware and malware. Um, and your data ended up being sent back to headquarters located in Russia. And so, but thankfully there was a moment in time where people could fork it before that change happened. Um, and there's one of one or two um, variants now of Audacity around. Um, <clears throat> but of course, somehow, I don't know, some other community that was involved with Audacity just left instead of moving to these new forks, which is, which is interesting because there was also talk a while ago about forking WordPress. I don't know if that ever happened, but um, this was like uh, during the Gutenberg stage where they were switching everything to Gutenberg and like the accessibility of WordPress's admin and stuff degraded um, quite a bit. And then there was this thing. But um, I think people in learned that there's an inherent problem in forking WordPress in that you, by doing that, you, um, you also inherit all the technical debt. Um, I heard that from the, the, the dudes who built Ghost, which is also an open source project that a company is built on top of, um, which is kind of like a blogging platform. It started all focused on journalists, journalism, but now it's more a way of generally just being able to make money from your own content. You can host it yourself. You can host it on their cloud servers. Um, they have like Stripe integration, all that kind of stuff. I have, I have an issue with the Stripe integration, which we can maybe dig into a little bit because it, it, um, it plays into the exclusionary nature of some of these things. But they, um, so the person who started Ghost, um, he was the lead uh, UX person at WordPress. Um, and so his first inclination when he got the idea for Ghost was to fork WordPress. But then that same thing came up. It's like, now you're inherently inheriting all the problems of WordPress. So first, before you can do anything innovative, you have to step back and solve all the, the bad things that you don't like or that's broken or that just needs fixing or that's, I mean, it's a massive. And then, then you have to open source that. You have to, if you're forking, you have to open source that. So then you're, then they could fork it back or something. They can, everyone benefits from it, but do you, are you comfortable with everyone benefiting from it? Are you comfortable with building a better WordPress and then someone somehow making millions of dollars off of it? Are you comfortable with you not getting any of that credit? Which is okay. Some people are like that, but then it depends on how big of a community is too. So much of like the cl modern cloud native stack has these pieces in it that are from a single maintainer. Like a single person is maintaining, single person maintains Perl. Like, and they do it great. But uh, in sales, they always say hit by the bus. But I heard a different uh, last year's KubeCon, which is what if someone wins the lottery suddenly? Are they going to still continue maintaining it? What if something happens to them? Things like that. There's a positive and negative to open source in every way. But the but the only solution that is going forward right now is to get more people involved and persuade more people, persuade more companies, I guess, if people can do it to, you know, invest in open source. If you're using open source, you should be investing in it. You should be paying your staff to contribute to it. But in the meantime, the communities need to find a way to motivate a mostly voluntary community.
like community leadership, but the community itself. So, um, yeah, there's a couple of things I want to dig into there. Just, just to like cycle back on the stripe thing, like, uh, like I live in South Africa, so um, and for the entire African continent, stripe is still not available. Like, I can pay somebody if you use Stripe, but I can't use Stripe to accept money. Now, um, as a result, I have stumbled upon many things like Substack, like Ghost Ghost Pro, um, and other services where it, it makes it possible for you to, for example, create educational material in a nice environment where it supports markdown, it supports embeds of, of video, of like little code snippets, code editors, all these things. It's super nice. But then when you want to think about, okay, what can I do for a membership tier? Um, it says, connect Stripe. And I'm like, I'd like to, but I can't. Then Stripe has this thing called Stripe Atlas which allows you to incorporate as a company in Delaware in the United States, but that costs $500 to start off with and then $100 per year to keep that going. So... Is Ghost aware of this? I'm sure they should be, but I was thinking of... of You didn't say it. Yeah, I would bring it to their attention. They may not know and they may choose to also integrate with another payment provider. That's the interesting thing. According to their docs, you could use PayPal. But if I follow their docs and how it's supposed to work, it doesn't doesn't align with the product. This is part of the problem. Docs are one of those things when you have a mostly volunteer community Mm -hmm. or also at corporations. These are something that the majority of engineers creating code don't have time or energy or inclination to create and update docs. Yeah. So, and guess what? A lot of these different things need recognition too. If you have an amazing docs person in your community, you need to recognize the fuck out of them <laughs> yeah. because they are providing a service. So you as a community member need to report or maybe you contribute to, you ask what is why is this not working? Figure out if they can fix it or you can fix it. And then you could contribute updating that documentation. Yeah, exactly. So, But that's the problem. You're not paying for a tool. So it's like that. But they're very good because of how undiverse um, only 2% of open source contributions come from Africa. Wow. So they may not be aware of this because they may not have community members complaining about exactly. this. Yeah, yeah. So... Well, it's 17% of the world population, so that's a problem. Now, that may change now because now there is a GitHub app for the first time. So it makes it much more easier for someone that doesn't have a computer but is the next generation, the the second half of the world going online is skipping laptops, skipping home internet. They're connecting via mobile devices. So now that there is a GitHub app, that may evolve quicker or maybe not because, again, or lower income countries mostly where people don't have time to do this and still there's problems like charging a cell phone things like that are they going to spend that time but um they if it's that percentage they may just not know so you have to inform but that's the thing you're getting something for free (laughs) you need to inform them what you want because they may or may not have a product backlog and they may not know what it is you're you have less power because you're not a consumer but you still have power you just have to use your voice more you may have more power because maybe people didn't say anything. It could be something they just really didn't know. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, I think that is something that 
that maybe as Mechanical Inc. we can do more of is raising these issues, writing about it, um, and, you know, directly contacting the people. Because uh, I, I through, through all the years I've worked at Mozilla or worked as a contractor at Mozilla, I, I have built up relationships with, like, some of the most well-known people in the open source industry. So I do have connections. But, okay, I, I need to warn you, Mozilla is special. Mozilla is not the typical open source industry. It is the example people should follow from their MozFest to everything with inclusion, not just, and I'm not just talking about the open source side, I'm also talking about the team side, their, your ability to work from anywhere. You can work from home or in office or half and half, but we'll figure out where you get the money, things like that. They are an exemplary company. Are they that most? Are they the most successful financially, though, as an open source back company? They have struggles. They've had a bunch of rounds of layoffs and things. So that's true. We must admit that they're not maybe the best business, but they're an exemplary way to do business ethically and to care for your community. But they invest a lot more in the community than pretty much almost any other open source project I know that isn't CNCF or. Like maybe something Red Hat Open Switch things like that where they're doing, but they 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 started it. They really have been doing it for a lot longer. So I hate to admit that most open source communities are not going to be that way, but they should. Be. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, just yesterday, Mozilla posted. Mark Sermon posted um, uh, the state of Mozilla and what's next. Um, I think you should look that up. Um, it's it's a very positive piece, and I was I was glad to read that because I I had my concerns to be honest. I'm from the financial perspective. Like Mozilla has been fighting giants, right? And um, it started to show. Um, but I think I think there's a newfound purpose to the company. Um, again, the inflection point I, I mentioned at the start. I think I think they've recognized it, um, and I think they're embracing the challenge, which I'm happy to see. I myself still need to read all the details, but I I kind of read the TLDR and, and it sounds really positive. And I, I like the fact that the foundation is driving a lot more of it again, because um, um, I think you know they're the ones who's still squarely focused on the mission um the corporation sometimes needs to deviate from that a little bit to make the money to support the foundation so that they can do the work um so and the thing is um inside mozilla there's there's a very open culture of voicing your opinion without fear of retaliation and i think that is something that i Having worked that way, I I can't see myself working any other way. So it'll just naturally be part of whatever I create. Um, and for those listening, this is being recorded on Friday, November eighteenth. We are obviously thinking of this under the context of the recent Twitter acquisition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the consequences to specifically um, engineers for talking out publicly against. Which also that's a difference. So speaking up in within a company than speaking publicly. Yeah. There can be repercussions. That doesn't mean people at Mozilla are talking shit externally. Though, uh, I don't know if they would be legally covered or not. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But, but, 
I, I've seen people talking pretty openly about problems they had while at Mozilla without me knowing that they were that there was anything legally happening to them. But of course, I know them uh, not necessarily personally. So what happened to them? But 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 with that said, they are the type of people who, if something did happen, they would not shy away from talking about it. Um, Hope so. Yeah. Hopefully, nothing changes because one leadership change, and that can be a big dramatic difference. Yeah. We like to think that we have power, but no, no, no. That's very true. You know, if a billionaire suddenly buys a non, not very profitable company, things can change. A cent billionaire. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So um, that is that is interesting that you brought up that topic. I think before we dig into that, I, I, I just wanted to like cycle back to something else. So, so the changes that, that you envision, like, so you said, like, you know, companies should be more open to like sponsoring, to encouraging contributions. But do you. Th- if they're benefiting from technology, they are doing an actual risk to their bottom line and their yeah. company and their customers and their data, because that's what it comes down to a lot when something happens by not investing in their staff contributing to it like this is how there can be larger sponsorship there can be conferences there can be etc but just paying staffers to be contributors is a wonderful simple way to give back to a community that someone at least half time is focused on adding that or a documentarian or whatever it is like that is a logical way that is something out of my hands but there are a lot of things that happen in the severely distributed. It's one of the first remote communities. Most open source projects are the, the most distributed communities a lot um, that people get away with. Harassment. Gatekeeping. Saying, oh, that's easy. You can do that. That doesn't help anybody. Having guidelines for how to speak to people. Um, having a code of conduct reminding people of the code of conduct, making them read it before they join, um, then actually having a way to enforce a code of conduct. Uh, I do be through the new stack. I do a lot of coverage of KubeCon and CNCF stuff, but be the first to use it as an example. Maybe it was two years ago now, because what is time? <laughs> time has lost on me. Yeah. They made this big deal. There was an asshole white supremacist tweeting white supremacist stuff, and they banned him from one of the KubeCon events. Okay, yeah, that's great. They made a big example of it. Oh, look how great we are. But at that same event, I th- so this must be like three years. It was back when they were in person before they went online. Now they're in person again. Um, I personally knew four women that groped at KubeCon events. I can't believe this stuff. So they did one thing once. Yeah. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's important to destroy white supremacists, but guess what? There's a lot more things you could do as well. So you need to have an enforceable code of conduct. You need to create examples of people if you need to. You need to take receipts. You need to then communicate with other communities and find ways that they know that's because people, predatory people will just move and follow and do the same pattern in another community. So people need to be aware of it. Um, You need to take care of people. You need to provide them basic human rights. If they're especially giving you free work, but they're doing anything, you just need to treat people well. But Yeah, not for sure. No, I, I agree. Do you think a lot of this or some of this can be driven from a grassroots level? Or does it have to come from company? Be. 
No, there's certain things that have to come, not from the company, but from the open source leadership. I'm not saying they're paid. Half of, what is it, 25, I'm probably butchering this. More than half of open source maintainers make $1,000 a month or less all the way down to zero. So these are people doing, open source maintainers are overworked and uh, overworked and underpaid. Which again, if people are, if companies are investing in it, maybe hire that person and pay them to do that. Pay someone to run the community. If you are a company that even is investing in the engineering or is reliant on that, but something happens really bad at that company, it looks bad on you. Also, if the, and then from a business side, if the security is not taken care of, things like that, like you can't do that. So grassroots, they're, these are a code of conduct. That's something that is, is a requirement, like a check mark for women, even like with enforcement and all to then go ahead and to even join. So I think that needs to come from leadership and that needs to be a priority, um, enforceable code of conduct you need, because there are certain things like saying who is the person that you contact for stuff like that. There are, um, code of conduct is a, a feature within GitHub. I know GitHub's not the only way, but it's like 80%. Um, I'm sure that takes someone that, with an administrative level to add that, things like that. But that doesn't mean some in the community can't say, hey, can I do this? Can I help you with this? Anyone in a community can volunteer to do these things. One of the other problems that communities have is they don't have a pathway to leadership. They don't have a clear pathway to leadership, which is very important because you cannot stress maintainers are overworked and underpaid. So how can they do that? Um, I'm trying to find right now, there's some really great metrics coming out from the chaos community and others uh, that the Linux foundation and KubeCon is trying to do. Uh, so like when you're talking about a different, a basic level is to have a code of conduct, maybe turning on closed captioning during meetings. The next level is publishing documentation and then having a contributor ladder. Uh, the next level is being transparent, like you said, being open and honest about how issues are picked up. Uh, one of, obviously, if you're the first time there are drive-through contributors and you're in, you're contributing for the first time and someone rejects your PR without telling you why, you're probably not coming back. Um, statistically, there we need more studies like this. This is a 2017 study, but I see no reason for it to be different. Um, unless a woman is a very well-known contributor, like, you know, leadership or maintainer level and all in a community are really well-known, she is less likely for her pull request to be accepted. If these same are blinded or masked to get rid of the gender, a woman is more likely to be accepted, which I'm sure their code is better because we are sexual socialized to perfection. It's same in the statistic that a woman will only apply for a job if she meets 100% of the requirements, which we know job descriptions are bullshit, but a man will at 65%, again, just on the binary. Um, similarly, a woman, I think, would just be statistically more likely to be submitting code that is much better, things like that. 
So knowing that, um, having some sort of flagging system to make it easier for newcomers to understand where to go, but not just new, maybe they're newcomers to your community, but they're interested in your project and they're like hardcore GitHub contributors. So there's um, a new project uh, in academia right now, but hopefully we'll see the crossover, which comes, is looking to automatically flag uh, issues and pair them with people based on their history of contribution on GitHub overall. Huh, that's interesting. So that would be a way to automate that. So there are ways to automate as well. So there's a lot of stuff. It's Fabio Marcos, <clears throat> I believe. Is this is coming the out of the person that is the head of that project? Is this coming out of the to do group by any chance? Or is it separate? No, this is this is an academic who went on his own to do oh, wow. it. <clears throat> so now the next chance is to partner academia. This is a constant problem that academia partner. AI, deep learning tends to be a bit better than anything else, but, you know, the next step. But he's applied to give a talk at KubeCon, so hopefully he'll get that talk now. I encourage him because so he can share his research and all. To take it to the next level at scale. Yeah, that sounds but, pretty interesting. Yeah. That sounds really uh, good. Something you mentioned earlier that had me thinking, you were talking about uh, somebody was trying to fork something because it was in Russia or something. That There was a huge pressure this last February, March mm -hmm. for GitHub to ban Russian projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I don't think they did. And they did not touch that one with the 10 foot. <clears> yeah. Um, but there was definitely a pressure to that. But imagine people that are reliant on that code. Imagine there's there's ethics around it. Should it happen or not? And also when you cut off, I mean, let's call Russia a continent. Um, when you cut that off, how are they getting access to people outside when you live under a dictator regime? So there's a positive and negative to everything. It's And open source just reflects society more because of its odd duckness. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a complicated one because often the people writing that software is not for what's going on in Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> and therefore they're being punished for living in a country that they don't necessarily agree with what's happening. I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot exactly. a lot of stuff. But it's still a form of sanction. No, it is. Do sanctions work with a megalomaniac, yeah. dictator? We don't know. But in general... Sanctions should logically work, yeah. but it could be deemed a sanction. Yeah. But can corporations now, Microsoft owning GitHub, um, can Microsoft have the power of a country to sanction either? So there's that question as well. GitHub, we look at it as like it is owned by Microsoft, same with LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, <clears throat> a few years ago, I would have not liked that, but I Microsoft has turned around big time. Um, I just constantly see certainly for green. Yeah, I see some so many good things coming out of them, and they're doing so much for um accessibility. It is incredible. Um, just yesterday, I noticed they have uh the ability in Teams to have uh, sign language interpreters join your Teams meetings. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such an obvious thing, but you know, yet they're the first to do it. Um, and then I saw that whole range of uh, gadgetry that they have oh, the with the buttons and and the joysticks that you can turn around and use its cheek, and it's all all the parts can be interchanged to 
you know, make it fit just your need. It's just incredible. And this is the benefit of having diverse engineers on your team yes. and user testing. But that that can only come this the UK government the UK government a hot mess. <laughs> the UK government digital service is very impressive. Yes. It is extremely accessible because they started from the start. There are no edge cases. If everything is going paperless, mm, mm, mm. there are no edge cases. Everyone has to use it. And part of what they did was from the start, they hired blind developers and different uh, developers with one arm or different disabilities. Mm -hmm. Because guess what? Those are people, and also people who are neurodiverse who are much more likely. Both all of these groups are tend to be have higher levels of unemployment, significantly higher. But guess what? So you're doing a good thing, but also you're making a better project. Yes. And that's why open source needs, well, open source reflection of the world. That's why everything needs. But my constant mantra is, if tech is the future and open source is the backbone of the future, because we're talking like 70% of businesses, majority of code, things like that, who is participating in building in that future? Mm. And how are we damaging that future by blocking people from participating in it? Yeah. That's my mantra. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. In various words. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so you also wrote a piece in the, you know, obviously it's very well timed now with uh, what's happening in tech, uh, fear and layoffs. Um, it's it's massive. Um, and it's interesting. I saw, I think it's the X. Most of my writing is. <laughs> And so the ex, I think it's the ex-CEO of GitHub that said um, all these companies know they're overstaffed and they've just not acknowledged it. And now now they're being hit with all these, uh, the, the climate of the economic climate, and they now have to acknowledge that they have flown too high for too long. Okay, first we can we're not going to talk about Twitter because that is a different oh, yeah, situation, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that is completely Adam. different. That doesn't that doesn't make sense. But um, Laura Thako, who's someone I interviewed for the article, someone that does is like an engineering leadership coach. Uh, she said the truth is these companies are big enough that they could have laid off zero people and it wouldn't have had an impact. So this is we can there. The companies that are doing this, besides like a Peloton, which kind of like lost its way mm. post COVID, and it's, I don't think anyone was shot. Like we feel bad for the people. And besides maybe Salesforce.com, we don't know, but they were probably doing the same. These giant companies that are doing layoffs right now, Meta or Blot, or doing hiring freezes, Microsoft, etc., were hiring because they could. Mm. They, there was a time six months ago, even where they, they had the money. So they're like, let's just all fight over developers. Let's just fight over engineers and let's pay them six figure bonuses, which good for those people that got those roles. But then first, last hired, first fired. Mm -hmm. But it was irresponsible and it was capitalism. That's all it was. They had the money to compete and they won't. Do I think overall this is where it's going? I don't think. So in tech, I think overall we are, it's quite clear we're entering a recession. Um, it was an irresponsible, like I can do it, so I'm going to compete and do it. And hopefully those people had savings that had those yeah. jobs, things like uh -huh. that. But 
also the truth of the matter is none of these companies they're doing it for stock and margins and boards and things that are just so separated from the human being mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's basically it's capitalism so that's the fucked up system we agree to participate in so <laughs> it's not great i feel bad for the individuals and their families yeah, but yeah. and especially when we're talking about we forget contract workers will be cut so that's security guards cleaners for buildings cafeteria workers because we know facebook or whatever we want to call it these days famously has food all these companies have food things like that those are the things being cut as well and nobody's talking about those workers and those are the workers that will be screwed those are also the workers at least in the u.s that are mobilizing a lot and unionizing so maybe not um i believe meta's or facebook cafeteria workers were some of the first tech unions so we'll see maybe they're okay but it's just, it was a downer of a week last week, let's be honest, because there were just layoff after layoff. It felt like a bloodbath, but it's just, typically they would have contracts in California or Europe where they have some sort of job security, at least to get severance and things, and hopefully they can get their next job. They just need to figure out how to go about that. It's harder also for people that are like left behind at a company like mm-hmm. that because it just sucks. Yeah, yeah. So they're also planning their moves. So there will be tons of moves in tech in the next couple of months. Maybe they'll wait till January or February, but yeah, yeah, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. So there'll be moves, and there's still a lot in demand and things. It's just more worrying when, like a Twitter. I know he said, "Let's not talk about it," but when he fires his entire ethical team, which Twitter was a standout with that. They were at least very transparent and much more than any other algorithms we see at the big fang companies and things like mm-hmm. that, or whatever we call it. I guess it's not fang anymore because they've all changed their names. So I don't know what the acronym is now, <laughs> but it, yeah. So it's just worrying when that happened four days before an election, he fires most of his content moderators, things like yeah, that. Yeah. So we just, these companies are bigger than countries, yeah. so they're the ones, but SMBs are still growing like 12% because they're used to being, you know, more frugal and, you know, growing, but they're growing slowly, not growing dramatically. Um, they're not being irresponsible. B2B seems to be doing well. Salesforce is the only one that, of the big B2B, maybe you call Stripe B2B, they had a big layoff too, but it's mostly B2C. Advertising's getting less. I don't know if that will make the internet better for everyone or not. Like that's the first marketing's always first thing cut. Mm. Community Devrel. This is going to affect the, bringing it back to open source. Devrel is one of the hardest jobs to measure. Yeah. Yeah. So they often get. I just did a cross across my neck, but it's a podcast, so I should probably <laughs> say that I did a actually very ableist symbol that I shouldn't have done either. They get cut. I shouldn't have done a beheading. Um. Yeah, it's a weird time right now. No, that's for sure. But so, um, we touched on on accessibility earlier, and um, about the fact that something like the GitHub app, um, potentially um, being able to include more people. Um, and I mean, like for me, I can I can talk to some of this as well. Uh. In South Africa, we our energy grid is severely constrained. Um, it's severely mismanaged and fraught with corruption. Um, 
as a result, we have these things. We, it's called load shedding over here, but I think people know it as rolling blackouts. But it basically means that there's periods during the day where your power is just cut. Um, and depending on the stage, there's different stages, goes from 1 to 8. Um, you have more power cuts or less power cuts, and they last for a longer period of time. Um, now, the effect of that is multiple um, to small businesses, especially. This is massive. This has a huge impact. Small businesses are closing because they can't operate when the power is out, and then they lose um, they lose customers, um, but they still have to pay their rent at the end of the month, and they still have to pay their tax at the end of the month, even though that tax is supposed to go to maintain this darn um, infrastructure. But... So, and the thing is, one of the things that I've noticed is, so on a good day, like right now, when we're con having a conversation and we have electricity, I have a 5G connection and it's good. And um, I, the internet is not constantly dropping and I can have a video call and everything is good and, you know, it's not constantly buffering and breaking up. But when that's not the case, um, sometimes my, I use my phone as a hotspot but sometimes it drops to 3G. And for people with 3G access on a phone, the internet essentially does not exist. Yeah. Well, as we are privileged to know it nowadays, but yeah. <laughs> so but how we grew up with dial-up basically is what you're going back to. Yeah, and 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 I think it's I think it's largely due and I mean I'm 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 guilty of it as well even though I'm more aware of it um, than most. But a lot of the products are built by folks on the latest MacBooks using, um, you know, super fast fiber, and they aren't thinking. Of course, yes. This is, oh, I see where you're going. Mm -hmm. Yes. That open source and the world of tech is screwed if they don't have people, you know, on poor internet. Yeah. With shitty devices, flip phones, or, well, now they're back or something. Yeah. But yeah, that is true too. Yeah, you need you need people involved. Also, by having the world involved, you have much more easier twenty four hour customer support or user support. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always a business benefit, and you could bring on so whoever cracks that is going to be the winner. So the people that bring the next people online, that was something that Mark Zuckerberg was really into for a while, but I haven't heard anything about it for a while. His internet startup and trying to bring people online with like ballooned internet in Africa and things, but it's definitely important because the internet saves lives. It provides medical training. It helps farmers understand how to get, get a better crop yield and be safer. Yeah. 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 Supports democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's not controlled access. No, for sure, for sure. Yeah. There's so much more that we can talk about, but I know we're time constraints. So um, in closing, two things. One thing, what do you love and what are your hopes for the future? About open source. Okay. Well, I just love the communities. I'm in so many. And uh, so I love that aspect. I love that I've had this privilege through it to tell these stories and to mentor some university students over the last couple months about diversity, equity, inclusion, and open source. And I hope it just does better because you all need to do better. Mm. So, 
and out. That's that's my final line. You can connect with me on at JK Riggins on places. I don't know if those places will exist <laughs> by the time this publishes, but yeah. So thank you so much for inviting me on this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Jennifer. And have a good the rest of your day and a good weekend. And I'll speak to you hopefully soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. Join the conversation on Discord. All the links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have a moment, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, as this helps others find us and helps us make a better podcast for you, our listeners.